Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome everyone to episode number 151 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm Adam. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. Adam, we've made it to the end of 2018. We've had a lot to celebrate this year. Of course, we had Stargate Origins at the beginning of the year. We had uh, GateCon. We had Comic-Con to talk about. Um, and we just celebrated our 150th episode of the podcast with David Reed joining us once again. But now, here at the end of the year, we have to look back and celebrate the fact that 2018 is also the 10-year anniversary of the two Stargate DVD movies. Uh, before we get into that conversation, how are things? How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm kind of in shock at, at when you recite back to me how much has happened this year. It kind of blew by, but I mean, this has been the busiest busiest year for Stargate in like seven years. Um, and there, there was a lot to be to be happy for and to be thankful for, honestly. Yeah, as quiet as the franchise has been for for so long, it's nice to have things rolling again, to have the web series in production, to have uh, Stargate-specific conventions. Of course, there were also new Stargate novels and new comic books published this year. I'm thinking about doing a 2018 kind of year-in-review for the, for the website. Maybe that'll be out uh, about the same time the podcast is. That would be great. I mean, even just for you, you had a busy year because you were at both, uh, I think, GateCon and you were on the Stargate panel at San Diego Comic-Con. So it's just like the old days where you're going to multiple conventions a year for Stargate. Yeah, it's been a lot of years since I was on the convention circuit. It's a ton of fun to be back. Uh, And it's great to be back on the podcast as well. Uh, We're so glad once again for everybody who's out there listening to us. Uh, The podcast is, is still occasional. We're not looking at a weekly show like we used to do. But we have plans for 2019 because we think this next year is going to be another exciting year for the Stargate franchise. Hopefully we'll get new produced content from the studio to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of us expected something to be here by now, but I still believe, you know, the word on the ground is that things are happening behind closed doors. So as old as this is getting to say, just hang in there. Something will come at some point. That's what I hear as well. There will be news when there is news. Um, uh, I think it's only a matter of time before we get something. Now, I don't know if that's going to be a movie or a TV series or another series of Stargate Origins on the web. Um, But I think MGM at least has demonstrated this year that they recognize the importance of this franchise. So I think they're doing something. Absolutely. We're definitely going to continue to cover that on GateWorld. But again, 2018 marks the 10-year anniversary. And this just... When you told me that you wanted to do this podcast on the 10-year anniversary of Stargate The Ark of Truth and Stargate Continuum, it kind of threw me for a loop for a while because how could it possibly be 10 years already since these two (laughs) movies came out? Right, yeah. I mean, I wasn't fully immersed in my Stargate fandom when these movies came out, but I still vividly remember walking into Blockbuster. And yes, I mean Blockbuster video, like Blockbuster. the physical store, you know, that you would go to rent movies. And and I remember seeing like half a shelf with uh, Continuum. It was out that week and they were running a big promotion for it. And yeah, you're yeah. right. That doesn't feel like 10 years ago. Um, I didn't know you were old enough to remember Blockbusters. <laughs> no, no, that was a big part of me growing up. The Friday night movie rentals. It was mm-hmm. it was fun. So for, for those uh, who might need a little refresher or who maybe even haven't seen the movies, I guess it's possible that someone might be listening who hasn't watched Stargate from start to finish and seen the two movies that come after Stargate SG-1 went off the air after 10 seasons. Uh, there will be spoilers ahead. Of course, we're going to talk about the contents of these two films now. Uh, Stargate The Ark of Truth came out in 2008 and it was after the 10th season finale, after the show went off the air. It had left some, uh, the main storyline was left unresolved, and we'll talk about what that was, but the Ark of Truth kind of caps off the main storyline, and then a few months later, it was followed by Stargate Continuum, which was more of a standalone adventure. These movies were released direct to DVD, um, and then later they aired on Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, and I mean, at the time, in 2007, uh, when SG-1 was in its 10th season, 
I think it's fair to say that most of the production was convinced there was going to be an 11th season. Um, earlier this year, you actually did a, vi- a video featurette about, you know, an 11th yeah. season of SG-1 almost happens. So they were kind of counting on that to wrap up the uh, the Ori storyline. So when, you know, sci-fi or sci-fi in the studio pulled the plug, there was, you know, this long-running sci-fi show that was just going to abruptly end. And I-, I think Arc of Truth, at the very least, was a way to make the legacy of SG-1 feel more whole and complete, even if they don't get, you know, a half season or a full season to resolve the Ori story arc. Yeah, the producers kept expecting that the show was going to end, both when it was on Showtime and then later when it moved to Sci-Fi Channel for its final five seasons. They kept expecting ends, so they would kind of write ends that would be sort of an end, but also leave it open for a movie. Yeah. Um, uh, like like this, the Anubis storyline, you know, Lost City was originally going to be an ending Um uh, and then finally, when they thought, oh, well, we're coming back for season 11, right? We ended up needing this movie after the show was over because they expected to come back for season 11. Um, we'll link in the show notes to that video and to everything else that we talk about today. If you want to head over to gateworld.net, um, you can find the show notes for episode 151. But let's talk about Ark first. The main discussion. Stargate the Ark of Truth was written and directed by Robert C. Cooper, who's a longtime writer and executive producer on the show. Uh, Rob started out in season one as a story editor, and then he just sort of worked his way up the ranks. And by, I think it was season eight of SG-1, he was an executive producer and sort of co-showrunner. Um, and the Ori story arc that we get starting in season nine is largely Rob Cooper's brainchild. Uh, at the introduction of the Ori and the Priors uh, and their their army of followers, um, this this came out of of Rob's head by and large. And then the introduction of Cam Mitchell and especially the role that Vala Maldoran played that was driven by Rob as well. Yeah, that was a whole different infusion of tone and energy with those two characters, which was interesting. I mean, I think the producers realized once uh, Richard Dean Anderson, you know, took a step back and then left the show completely, you cannot replace O'Neill with another you know, O'Neill clone. You really have to take things in a bit of a different direction. And I know there's some divergence in the fandom in terms of those last two seasons with both the characters and the Ori story arc. Um, But personally, I really loved that arc. I mean, it kind of, it it felt very Stargate. It continued with this whole mythology and and false gods and and this this galaxy-wide peril, but it also brought, you know, a a bit of a, a evolution of tone. The goal here seemed to be to amp up what the Gould had always been. Of course, the Gould were defeated at the end of season eight. So this kicking off of a, of a new storyline was keeping close to the DNA of what Stargate had always been, right? The, the, the enemy was uh, posing as false gods and their followers, the, the Jaffa, were in fact innocent people who were enslaved. So there had been this, this moment of liberation in, in Reckoning and Threads at the end of season eight where the Jaffa, the, the system lords were defeated and the Jaffa were free. Um, and in fact, of course, we had made alliances with the Jaffa uh, over the course of many seasons. Here, there's a similar kind of dynamic. The Ori are ascended beings. They're sort of like evil ancients from another galaxy. But we have to deal with their followers, right? We're dealing with the human beings who believe that they're gods and who come to our galaxy to convert us. Yeah, and I, I think with uh, Stargate, the Ark of Truth, we see, you know, the heart of the story, um, at least when it comes to the Ori, really revolve around Toman, whose the scales are peeled back from his eyes in the movie, and he, he kind of sees, as does Adid Teolk, um, very long ago, that he's been serving false gods who are incredibly vindictive and, and toxic, and, and the brainwashing effect is so powerful for these people, it's really profound to see characters try to find redemption even after they've committed atrocities and how, you know, SG-1 helps these characters find some kind of reconstruction or redemption, too. Toman is one of my favorite characters, I gotta say, of, of not just in the Ark of Truth, but in this this whole Ori storyline, because he's so genuine. Yeah. He's he's a true believer. He's not a, a, a crazy 
person who's, uh, you know, uh, leading the armies because he's interested in conquest and victory and all this. He's sort of a reluctant commander. Yeah. And the Ark of Truth really focuses on this. So Line in the Sand in season 10, he'd had this sort of reckoning with the prior. Uh, and the fact that the prior was interpreting the Book of Origin to suit his own needs. Uh, but Toman, Toman is a person of faith. Toman is really a true believer. And so he's wrestling now, now that he turns to our side. So there's a great heart to heart with Teal'c. And Teal'c tells him, you know, you, you might not ever be able to forgive yourself. But what you can do is spend the rest of your life trying to make up for the evil that you did. And that was a really compelling scene. That was on my list of notes to, to discuss because it was, I, I believe, it was in the the mess hall of the Odyssey, um, where these two characters share a moment, and he'll kind of sees um, behind the eyes of Toman what's going on. And, you know, for Teal to open up with that kind of eloquence and to really say such bold things, it means something because we know this character is usually very reserved. And, and it's just it gives me shivers because it it was a bold scene and it landed exactly how it, needed, how it needed to. And it was very organic. It didn't feel like I was getting hit with a hammer by the theme. It felt, you know, so quintessentially Stargate. And that's why Arc of Truth, I think, really holds up really well after 10 years is because it's not just uh, an hour and a half of plot that's trying to tie up the loose ends from the TV series, because they do take the time to do these sorts of character moments um, that, right, I want to know what the consequences of all of this is for a person like Toman. And then they come back to it at the end of the episode when the Ori have been defeated and Adria's gone and... Toman and Vala have this heart to heart and right we get the impression that he's he's still a person of faith it's not that he's completely lost his religion uh, he just is now going to go back to his his home world in his home galaxy and potentially be a leader of a sort of a reformation in the religion of origin and look for what is good and pure and beautiful in it absolutely I think usually the the instinct for for making a movie when you go from a, a TV show to a movie like maybe like with Firefly and Serenity or, or any canceled TV show that sometimes gets a a bigger budget feature film adaption the the instinct is to go bigger you know what I'm saying make those set pieces bigger make the visuals look richer and I mean Arc of Truth does that two interesting things is, is it's shot on 35 millimeter film instead of hmm. digital so it gives a, a more softer cinematic rich look. And uh, Joel Goldsmith also got to score the compositions with a live orchestra. And, you know, when you're recording with woodwind instruments in an actual room, it, it's always going to sound better than if you're using program synthesizers. So yeah, I think right. like like the, the movie as a whole has the production values are elevated a bit. I mean, the show is fantastic, but this is beyond fantastic. There's just a, a real warmth and opera to it. However... There's still the heart with the character. You know, they didn't go so big that they forgot to have these dialogue scenes that aren't really part of like you don't really see in blockbuster movies that much. But Stargate found this great in between between going big and still keeping it personal. And I think the arc of truth and, and continuum as well are really prime examples of that. We heard time and time again when the show was in production that, you know, there was this scene between these two characters and they had this reckoning, this heart to heart. They had this little conversation on the side and then it hit the cutting room floor because the episode was running long. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that they could they could get away with Arc of Truth because it was it was meant for DVD release. You know, they could they could leave all that stuff in and they could make the movie exactly what Rob Cooper wanted it to be. And some of my favorite SG-1 episodes were, were two-parters, like Lost City, and, and that's essentially the length of Arc of Truth, you know? I mean, I always loved when Stargate went beyond the episodic and had a two- or three-part where characters could develop, you know, in a single story, mm -hmm. but over the course of several episodes. Um, this provides that luxury that maybe you didn't have when you were trying to tie everything up within 42 minutes, you know? Well, since you brought up the score from Joel Goldsmith, let me ask, uh, what do you make of the fact that they decided to reuse a bunch of the movie score? From the original movie? Yeah, from the original 1994 Stargate. Um, it was it was kind of jarring to me. And, and going back and rewatching this years later, I had forgotten that it was in there. But it opens with this grand orchestral score of uh, that David Arnold did for the original Stargate film. Uh, it's an interesting choice, right? Because we watched the TV show for so many years. And Joel's music, sort of at least in season one, it took its start from David Arnold's score. 
but it really very quickly became its own thing such that there's there's a, a bit of dissonance between the film music and the television score yeah so yeah. it's really interesting that not only that they used it but then that joel blended it in with his own stuff i mean was that a creative or strategic decision to kind of maybe bookend the entire what seemed to be the entire stargate story or was that i mean do you know do you have any inside info because you were around a lot longer and you, you... i don't have any uh, production insight on that choice but the impression that i get when i watch it is that this is a sort of declaration of uh, being back in film mode, right? Stargate has been on television for 10 years. And this with the arc of truth is a declaration that we're now in a, even if it's not on the big screen, we're in a, in a long format now. Yeah. And I think an interesting way to view the movies for me, isn't that, uh, they're just, you know, safeguards or fail safes, you know, okay, we, we don't get 11th season. So we'll, we'll make a DVD movie or two. It was really intended to be the next evolution of storytelling for SG-1. I mean, you got Arc of Truth, obviously, which had to wrap up the Ori storyline pretty quick. But the goal was to go well beyond Continuum with these movies. Like, this was supposed to be a situation where we would get yeah. maybe one, possibly two SG-1 movies a year for several years to come that could explore, you know, less urgent story threads that need to be wrapped up. It could be like Continuum. It could be a standalone adventure. Um so that's really interesting. In a way, I kind of feel bummed out that we only got these two because it didn't feel like SG-1 had run out of gas. Like by the end of Continuum, I was still looking for more movies. Yeah, well, we'll talk about the fact that Continuum, as I've said multiple times on the podcast, Continuum is one of my favorite Stargate stories. So if you're going to go out on a high, it's it's a nice story to go out on. But it definitely felt like, boy, they sure had a lot more stories that they could tell. So for uh, the arc of truth, uh, Darren, as a guy who watched SG-1 from very, very early on. And very closely. Yeah, yeah. How did this feel as a conclusion to the Ori storyline or, you know, a potential conclusion to uh, the overarching story threads throughout the 10 seasons to give SG-1 finality so that they could expand to feature films? It's I'm of two minds about this. It's story-wise and character-wise, I think it's really satisfying. It's a classic SG-1 adventure. Uh, everybody's involved. Everybody has something to do. There's this this mix of, you know, sci-fi, adventure, action, character drama. Um, and it, it answers all the questions that I needed answered after the show ended. It, it, you know, Adria and Morgan Le Fay. And did the weapon that we sent through in the Shroud really kill the Ascended Ori? Um, it, it hit all those beats. But what I'm still not sure about rewatching it all these years later is, you know, the arc of truth as a as a plot device, as a MacGuffin, it, it was really awfully convenient, I suppose, if, if that's one way that I could put this. It's uh, the solution to a really kind of existential, you know, multiple galaxy wide crisis, which is faith or belief in these ascended beings as gods. Um, the way that it gets solved is we just have to find a piece of technology and find out how to turn it on. Um, and that, that felt like it kind of was a, was a, a shortcut, maybe a necessary shortcut in terms of the, the span of time that was available to tell the story, but it, it's a shortcut nevertheless. Yeah. And I think with, with the arc, there's a dichotomy. Is it a piece of technology or is it, is it a mythological relic? You know, something where it's like if you think of Indiana Jones when they open the arc, that's like completely spirituality. But with this arc, it's actually something that can be programmed. You know what I'm saying? But in the, yeah, in the beginning, technology. there's a balance. Our expectations are kind of tempered and we have to figure out what, you know, how this device is going to help our heroes. So I've also lodged this complaint in past years when we've talked about this movie, which is that uh, there is a there's a moral dilemma that's introduced at the beginning of the film. We get the flashback scenes with the the ancients, the Alterans, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, when the Ark was first created uh, by the Alteran Amelius, and uh, there's a there's a bit of a debate among the Alterans as to whether whether they use this against the Ori. Yeah, uh, it's a brainwashing tool, right? Now we learn that it can only be used to brainwash people towards the truth, right? Apparently, you can't program it with anything you want. Uh, but it's a brainwashing tool. So there's this moral conundrum that's introduced in the ancient say, you know, we're not going to use it because we believe, you know, our, the ori need to be convinced with reason, with science, with evidence. We're not just going to use our technological prowess 
to force them to believe the way that we think they ought to believe. Um, that moral conundrum is dropped. And it's something that SG-1 doesn't, doesn't address really all that much, doesn't engage. And so the climax to the film ends up being just, uh, well, we're going to use it, right? Obviously, we're going to use it. Now, going back and watching it uh, recently, I've, I've realized there's, there's a little bit more layered in there than I had caught before. So like, for example, at the end of the film, Daniel and Landry are walking in the corridor and they have a, a brief conversation about this. Daniel's point is basically, uh, yeah, there's a moral issue here, uh, but doing what we did seemed like it was better than the alternative. And that's something. I don't know if it's enough, but uh, it's a it's a 90 minute film. So maybe that's all we had time to really cover. Yeah, I mean, it's a situation of maybe the end justifies the means or using fire to fight fire. You're using a potentially dangerous or unethical tool to stop genocide or murder or invasion. Um, yeah, in that sense, it is very SG-1 because these are the kinds of overarching ethical dilemmas that we've seen throughout the show and that the show became extremely adept at dealing with, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, for the Alterans, maybe it's easy for them to to sort of take the moral high ground when they didn't have armies, you know, in, invading a galaxy, bending whole planets to their will, yeah. and in some cases, wiping out civilization. Like the Ori ships attacked Dakara and just destroyed the Frigifa nation. We see this in war all, all the time. I mean, in 1945... People were very hesitant to use the atomic bomb, but the casualty estimates for invading somewhere like Japan yeah. would have been so costly. You know, I, I'm not I'm not taking a side. I got to be very clear about taking a side with the decision. But when when a during wartime, a country is given an extremely powerful device, they they pro, they often use it to win it because they'll feel like the end justifies the means. The, the right. people that they can save are worth the people that, that will be sacrificed. Yeah. As sad as that of, is, of course, there's lots of debate about the sort of speculative rationale of avoiding uh, lives lost at the end of World War II. But the analogy is is certainly apt, right? If, if SG-1 is handed the equivalent of an advanced, you know, H-bomb. And in this case, they can they can use this, this weapon without casualties, right? This is not demolishing the other side. This is cutting off the, the, the way in which the Ori have manipulated human beings throughout their galaxy. Absolutely. So while the Ori are at the center of the arc of truth, there is a secondary threat that we encounter when we go through the Supergate um, as a result of a character named Merrick, who's this uh, kind of like a, a black ops IOA agent who is uh, escorts the Odyssey and SG-1 along um, with them on their mission. And I guess it's in the middle of the movie, kind of as things are heating up with the central story arc, he cre recreates the replicators um, with this covert plan that the replicators will basically have a scorched earth policy on the other in the other galaxy. Um, this is something that SG-1 isn't aware of, and this is something that creates a tremendous dilemma on the Odyssey, which actually takes up a pretty significant amount of screen time. So I just want to ask you, how did you feel about that as a B story arc, especially when you only have 90 minutes to tackle a story so monumental that is, you know, tying up a story arc that might have gone for another yeah. half season or another full season. Yeah, especially if you think about it in terms of uh, arc of truth might be, in a sense at least, a, a condensed version of what an 11th season would have been. Right. Um, I think the replicator plot more than anything makes this feel Believe it or not, makes it feel smaller to me. It makes Arc of Truth feel more like a TV movie than a, a big feature. Uh, and I'm not talking in terms of budget. I'm talking in terms of, of the sort of story and plotting, right? When I go to the theater to watch a feature film, uh, I usually don't see... I mean, there's usually not much in the way of a B-plot. Yeah. There's usually sort of one focus, one question. But the replicators become this big B-plot that are almost disconnected from the Ori storyline. It's right. The connection is Merrick, who's played by Curry Graham. Merrick has decided, or the IOA has decided, and he's implementing it, that that this is kind of a uh, their their backup plan. This is their plan B. If if we can't disable the Stargate on the other side, uh, if we can't find the Ark kind of right away and put a stop to the threat, then they're going to unleash the Replicators in the Ori's home galaxy. 
and just let them run run rampant. And I don't know, maybe if they ever find their way back to the Milky Way, then we'll deal with it then. I think I think it was Mitchell who said, do you know, how? like, what did you do? Do you know how hard it was to defeat these guys the first time around? And that's yeah. a great line because it's like, why would you open Pandora's box even as a contingency plan? The, the hubris of the IOA, honestly, I feel like to even yeah, that's, consider that's implementing that. It's the hubris. It's the ignorance. They don't they don't comprehend how profound a threat the replicators are, not just to the people that we unleash them upon, but eventually to the whole of of human life and, and us as well. Eventually. Yeah, right? we've dealt with the replicators in, in multiple galaxies at this point. We've come across them. Yeah. And, you know, in the context of the Ark of Truth, it might have sounded like I was asking a loaded question. I actually do like the Replicator story arc. I, I think it provides yeah. some really kick-ass ship-based action and it's and it's fun to watch. Um, I think that there's this scene where Mitchell has an extended hand-to-hand combat sequence with the uh, Merrick, who's now... The replicators are kind of developing an exoskeleton on him to control him, so they're tapped into his spine, and you know he's essentially this super-powered replicator yeah, fighting yeah, replicator Merrick. And there's and that's a cool, cool scene. Um, and, and we get moments like that that really do up the level of of scale, you know, in terms of the action beats. Yeah, it's a it's a great fight, and you know Ben Browder has already demonstrated on the show. With the you know the the Black Knight fights, yeah, he's already demonstrated yeah. that he's kind of, and he's the action hero of the show, and so he gets this knockdown drag out fight with Replicator Merrick that is really satisfying. I do think you're right though that it, it does almost feel a little safe. It's like the writers struggle to fully break their mold of having to craft an A story and a B story in a conventional TV setting. You know what I'm saying? It's like it it, it kind of it carried over some elements of a TV show that maybe they didn't need. You know what I'm saying? But when you write one way for 10 years, it's like, well, well, why would we change it? You know, I feel like this was kind of like a hybrid. They weren't really sure which direction they wanted to go. And they had so much ground to cover. They decided to throw in a good old fashioned smack them down B plot. Yeah. And maybe it's also necessary because the arc of truth is the sort of plot device that it is. The arc itself is this sort of, it's going to solve our problem, so the story beats need to be, basically, we find out that it exists, which the, the team already knows about it when the movie picks up. They're looking for it on Dakara. Uh, the Ark exists, we got to find it, uh, and then we got to open it and turn it on. So that's, that's as, if, as far as the A plot goes, following uh, Daniel and, and Vala and Teal'c, that's a, a kind of finite number of story beats, so I understand why there, there's this maybe perceived need for a B-plot in there. So when it comes to the end of the Ark of Truth, a little a while back I read a rumor that um, the ending we got wasn't exactly the original ending, and it was an interview with Michael Shanks um, where he said that SG-1, uh, the Ark of Truth used to end with SG-1 being concerned that the Ark was left in the government's hand and how how that could be used as a brainwashing tool. Could it be discovered along the line? Even if it's only for truth, it is still a weapon yeah. of, you know, for control over the masses. And supposedly they shot this ending where SUN planned and executed a raid, uh, I guess, Area 51, where it was being stored. And that would have let us out of the movie. I'm not sure if Michael Shanks yeah, right. was messing with us or if that's actually what they considered because that would have been a huge uh, addendum or epilogue to the whole um, theme and uh, main story arc of the movie. Yeah. My impression was that that was, that was the intent. At least it was scripted and planned. I don't know if they shot it, but um, we, what we get in the movie is this walk and talk with Landry and Daniel and Landry tells him, right, this, uh, the arc is in area 51. It's being studied. And Daniel is objecting to the fact that we're holding on to this thing and studying it, right? What if, what if scientists in area 51 can disassemble it enough to figure out how to make it into a brainwashing tool for non-truthy things? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was this scene where SG-1 executes this covert operation against orders and breaks into area 51 and destroys the thing. Which I would that would have made a really interesting kind of maybe post credits yeah. epilogue, but it, it it's it's a massive breach of professionalism for them to act covertly against their own government. 
Um, I, I kind of wonder what the legal yeah. ramifications of that would have been. Um, I, I, I'm guessing that the scene would have been pretty short and just would have been established that they weren't discovered and no one knew that you know no one knew they were ever there. That type of thing. Um, but it, it would have been a very gutsy way to to end the story. Yeah. It would have been a really particular decision about SG-1 and those characters, right? Because they've gone Black Ops and acted on their own before at season one finale when they go through the gate to Apophis' ship. But that's when the fate of the planet is at stake. Yeah. Not just there's a sort of, of you know, moral or policy disagreement with the government. Um, so, it, yeah, it makes sense to me that they didn't end up including it. Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, I am. It's super cool. Sounds like an amazing sequence that I would have liked to see on film. But I am very, you know, ultimately satisfied with how they ended the arc of truth. Yeah. OK, let's talk about Continuum. Now, while Rob Cooper was working on writing and directing Stargate the Arc of Truth, uh, meanwhile, Brad Wright was writing Stargate Continuum, which is the the movie that comes after it ends up being the final adventure for SG-1, at least so far. Uh, And the film is directed by Martin Wood. Yeah, this movie has a real globetrotting sense of adventure. I really think the scope and scale of the action is, is notably bigger than Arc of Truth, even though I believe they were working with a similar budget. Even though this doesn't tie up a singular storyline that's dying to be resolved, like the Ori, in a spiritual sense, it provides a beautiful ending for SG-1 because we have Jack O'Neill back. We have, you know, the new SG-1 plus Jack. We have the threat of Ball. We have some of the system lords back in the mix. Um, You have some incredible action set pieces that never could have been done in a TV schedule with a TV budget. Um you have alternate timelines it's it's really fun it's, it's just such almost a fun like a movie. fun old school adventure i love this movie so much it's it's classic sg1 it's so much fun the adventure the humor the sci-fi elements it's all there this i think is a perfect stargate story um and it's uh, they got a bigger budget to do it, which just makes it all the better. Yeah, and I mean, even it's not light to the point where there aren't heavy dramatic stakes. Like w- within, I guess it's the first ten minutes of the movie. Like o- O'Neill is killed. Um, I guess like I want to ask you when oh, you yeah, first everything goes to hell. When you first saw that movie, what was that like to see Jack O'Neill get gets stabbed and killed so early on in the movie? Like what was going on in your head, and where did it's, you think the oh, story man. would lead? It stakes. This movie opens up with gravity and with big stakes. Yeah. And in that sense, it does make it a really sort of fitting bookend conclusion for Stargate SG-1 because not only is Jack O'Neill back, but when Ball does what Ball does and rewrites the timeline and, uh, you know, Vala disappears, the Tok'ra city starts to vanish and all the, the the fabric of history starts to unravel around SG One as they're running towards the Stargate. Uh, it's it asks this this question, you know, what if everything we've been doing over the last eleven years was just all undone? Yeah, everything that you know and love about Stargate, about the SGC, about SG One, what if at the end of the day our enemy could figure out how to undo it all? That's an amazing question. The stakes are are huge. Yeah, and that's really scary because you're just as desperate as the characters are to restore this old timeline or, you know, undo Ball's nefarious master plan. And that actually brings uh, a really interesting ethical conundrum to this story as well. Kind of just like we had a good one in Arc of Truth, the kind of central ethical question is what gives you the right to change to the timelines of multiple universes or multiple realities. Like there's yeah, a scene why is your where, timeline better than my timeline? Yeah, essentially there's a scene where Landry and, and uh, Cameron and, and Daniel Jackson, Samantha Carter are in this hangar and the alternate Landry is, is saying, you know, I believe you, uh, you know, I, because SG one has come to a reality where there was no SG one. Carter had died as an astronaut. It's a surprise to see these people alive. You know, they haven't discovered the Stargate yet. So we come into this reality where, they're completely clueless that there are system lores or threats that could annihilate Earth. And SG-1 is begging Landry, you know, let us fix this. We need to get back to our reality. We need to protect yours. And and he rightfully, I think, puts them in their place and says, what gives you the right? The arrogance of what you're asking is mind boggling. And so we have to weigh our emotional involvement, which is that we know and love this SG-1 
um, that we spent, you know, 10, 11 years with, but also Landry's completely right from an ethical standpoint. And that kind of really drives a wedge in between all these characters in the middle of the movie that ups the stakes even more than they could have been upped with the traditional dilemma that was planted in the beginning. Yeah, it is a moral issue. And Landry points out that they're just right, right. The the audacity of <laughs> them suggesting that this whole reality now needs to be undone to make it the way that it used to be. Uh, that That is audacious of them to do, because right. why is their world better than ours? And right, they... You know, now that you've told us about the Stargate, Landry says, you know, we're going to get a, a program up and running and, you know, we can get ready for threats if the Gould ever come to Earth. It's it's profound. And that, again, continues the high stakes of the film, because when SG-1 gets home and gets into this new reality and discovers what has been changed, uh, they don't get to jump into action. Yeah, they don't get to you know, put together a team and come up with a plan and see how they can undo this. They're separated. They have to go their own separate ways and they have to wait, right? And it's something like a year before Ball shows up and the action kind of picks up again. Yeah, there's there's so many great character moments peppered into that year of waiting, like one of which is where uh, Dr. Daniel Jackson calls his alternate self, who's this kind of discredited <laughs> yeah. crackpot conspiracy theorist. Yeah, after he's found his book yeah. in the bookstore with <laughs> yeah. the the yeah shady Daniel bio photo on the back of his book. Right, right. And and he tries to call himself and, and encourage himself and say, you know, you're right about everything. And the alternate Jackson thinks R. Jackson is just pulling his leg. And it's like the poor guy can't even get a victory. He can't even encourage himself in another reality. I mean, it's, yeah. it's humbling because SG-1 is so completely helpless. They're essentially put into witness protection and told to stand down or face, you know, life imprisonment or something along those lines. Um, I loved that. I mean, I know it's not interplanetary yeah. adventure, but it's it's character storytelling. You know, it, it, it really is. You wonder what's going to happen. You know, we talked with Ark about the fact that they could leave all those small little character scenes in because they were making the movie for DVD. Uh, there's a second cut. There's a television cut of these films, and that scene's cut out of the, the TV cut of Continuum. Really? Are you talking about the, the whole middle section or just the Jackson scene? Just the, yeah, when Daniel is, is sitting on his bed and, and calls himself. Yeah. That scene was was trimmed out. The middle part of the film here, I think that what these character beats do, as we see Sam and Cam and Daniel settling into these lives that are not their own lives, and they're separated from each other, they're not allowed to be in contact with one another. Um, this this does a ton for their characters as a whole, not just for this film, but for the characters that we come to know and love. It's it's kind of forcing us as as viewers to look at the question of what are these people made of? Yeah. Right. You can be an action adventure hero. You can save the planet 10 times. But when you're stuck in a house or in a hotel room and you're forbidden from doing what you think needs to be done. Uh, right. So just seeing them kind of work out their frustrations and work out their angst and what they choose to do with their time and, and with their lives for this year. Um, I think it does a ton for their characters. Yeah. I mean, how could they even have a healthy social life? I mean, what do they have to share with other people? They can't tell anyone anything about their past life they just have to you know essentially invent a whole new identity and reality for themselves and, and i also wonder you know when they're con- trying to argue against landry and convince him to uh let them go back in time are, are they emotionally compromised themselves i mean carter has a really interesting arc or kind of emotionality to her to her storyline because like i think the death of o'neill really hits hard for her and she knows that she may never see the jack she knows again unless she's allowed to fix this timeline now meanwhile up in the skies ball finally shows up and this is where continuum gets kind of crazy out there let's bring back everybody yeah that we've ever faced all the all the system lords that we killed off now they're alive again and ball is in charge of them all Ball is the supreme system lord. He has Katesh by his side. So we get the goulded version of Vala, uh, who we never saw on the show. We saw the sort of aftermath of her having been goulded, the aftermath of Katesh's reign over these planets. But we get to see Katesh. Uh, we get to see who's there, Nirti and Apophis and Cronus is there. And basically the whole gang is back. 
Right. And, and this is, again, a result of immense patience on behalf of Ball, because he had to spend decades cultivating this infrastructure and, and using basically a knowledge of the future to control his timeline. Um, yeah. and, and I think that kind of gives a great little introspect into Ball, the kind of villain he is i mean we've seen a lot of this in sg1 of course but it's like it's kind of commendable what he's able to do knowing the mythology of the show um and yeah to bring everyone back to bring the gang back and and you know make them a threat in the alternate reality it was a really really smart story move he ball is such a great villain because he's not just smart but he's also patient right just as you said he's this is a plan that has been unfolding over the course of decades to get him to the point where he's ready to go to Earth. Uh, that's it's he's a he's a ghoul unlike any other for sure. Yeah, and I think what what's ironic is that's ultimately his undoing because we start out or you know we start out his arc where Katesh is in awe of him. She says, "I'm in awe of your accomplishments. How do you how have you managed to you know pull all the system lords together under your watch?" And then she discovers, oh, it's almost like he's lived amongst the Tari, or it's almost like mm-hmm. he's not telling me something about himself that I should be concerned about. And that ultimately convinces her to murder Ball and assume his throne and, and become the, yeah. the real villain of the story. But she's not really in awe. She hates him from the word go. She hates him. He's forced her to sit at his side. And she, yeah, she figures out pretty quickly that he's holding a lot of cards that she didn't know about. When she demystifies where he's getting this power, suddenly she sees her out. She can seize it for herself, you know? Yeah. So then we finally learn how it is that Ball has managed to do all this, how it is that uh, a version of Ball, one of one of his clones, or maybe the original, I'm not sure at this point who the original was, <laughs> um, but I think it's probably the original who time-traveled back to the year, back to the day when the Stargate was being shipped from Africa uh, over the Atlantic Ocean to the United States at the outbreak of the war. Um, and he gates onto the ship, plants a bomb. The goal is to cause the ship to sink. The Stargate is never going to be found. Yeah. So that's the change, right? The Stargate is lost. The SGC never comes into existence. But of course, there's all these other ripples throughout the history from the late 1930s that affects more of the timeline. Yeah, I got to say the whole sequence of Ball and, and his Jaffa gating under the Achilles and and, you know, shooting up the place. Just that whole visual of these aliens and these staff blasts on this 1930s shipping vessel at night. Oh, it's so uh, it's, cool. It's rich. It's just the sets are beautiful. The action uh, just takes on a whole new vibe. I, I, when I first saw this, you know, when I was young, I was just in awe. You know, I was captivated. I couldn't believe this was Stargate because it just it took things to the next level in such a fun way. And I think, you know, the, the creators of the show knew after 10 seasons, how to use every penny to count. You know, they knew what to spend their money on and what to, you know, blow all their cash on and then when to hold back and give really good character moments like in the middle. You know, the middle is is like a character piece where these characters are stuck basically in hiding and witness protection, like I said. But the converse of that is we get big blowouts like the Death Glider and F-15 chase or the the set pieces on the Achilles. And so it's just, it's such a well-balanced movie yeah. is I think what I'm trying to get at. This, again, is part of the original DNA of Stargate. It's the it's the mashup of contemporary everyday Earth, uh, including the, the U.S. military that goes through the gate in the original feature film and the the futurism, the sci fi, the, the big costumes and the death gliders and the ray guns, that mashup. Uh, that sort of out of place feel of mashing those two things together is Stargate. And we get that with the the fighter jets and the Russian MiGs going up against the Death Gliders. We get that with the Jaffa on the Achilles. So now how did Ball do all this? How did Ball figure out how to time travel? This is a this is a deep cut. This is, requires you to know something about the history of Stargate mythology to see how he did this. Because we're going to be introduced at the end of the film to Praxion. Praxion is this amazing science experiment that Ball has been running for decades. And it's obviously it's taken him decades to get it up and running. But it's a it's a giant time machine. It's brilliant how he's put this together. Because remember, Ball has spent a lot of time on Earth. He's stolen a lot of information from Earth. And so he knows about time travel. He knows about SG-1's time travel episodes. And he knows that 
when the wormhole of a stargate passes too close to a solar flare, there's a gravity warping effect that causes the wormhole to bend back on itself. And that's how you get time travel in the Stargate universe. So Ball has constructed this thing. He's got sensors monitoring all these stars all through the galaxy and sending in real-time telemetry data, calculating, right? If I dial a Stargate from here, from this planet, from Praxion to another Stargate, it's going to pass close enough to that star that the wormhole is going to be bent in such a way. And he can even calculate, right, what year is that going to send me to? So that's what he's doing. He's monitoring solar flares in real time all through the galaxy. That's how the, the time travel device at Praxion works. And that's truly terrifying because we've seen what happens when characters accidentally stumble upon solar flares. You know, a wormhole it hits a solar flare um, completely by coincidence. Now just imagine if someone with nefarious intentions has complete control over that. Yeah. I mean, that is like the ultimate threat to the galaxy, and that's why I think the final stand, you know, the last stand of SG-1 is so important, not just because of the character motivations of the character journey, but also because if we don't destroy this facility or we don't stop Ball, there's no saying what he can do and what reality or what timeline. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and as long as Praxion exists, somebody can use it to rewrite reality. Somebody like Katesh can get their hands on this thing and reshape the galaxy the way that she wants it and undo everything that Ball did. It's, it's terrifying. Again, the stakes could not be higher just by the fact that this thing exists. Uh, and you're right. I think all the time travel incidents that I can think of in SG-1 history have been, by and large, accidental. So the fact that now we have a, a, a lead villain who's figured out how to do this on purpose is huge and it's terrifying yeah and, and you know from a production standpoint as well that whole final stand on praxion is just gorgeous yeah. i mean the set is incredible again i don't know i don't know how they built it obviously probably with some visual effects extensions but it, it looks real you know and and watching SG-1 die is never fun. It always hurts. I don't care what timeline or reality it's in. Hey, but it's a time travel story. We got to do <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I know. We can kill off Jack. We can kill off everybody. We convince Tilk to fight on our side. Uh, Ball's not going to give him what Ball's been promising Tilk all these years, which is he's going to free the Jaffa eventually. Right. Uh, so, yeah, Tilk dies and Sam gets shot in the back. Who survives? Cam Mitchell survives uh, and he makes it through the gate but he makes it to the wrong year. He's got to go back because they're out of options and he ends up back in the past 10 years too early. Yeah, I, I mean, it's again now the, it's the hero's turn to be patient to fix the to fix yeah, the right. story arc and exec, execute a, a master plan. So that that ends up being the end of Ball's story, right? Cam is there. He's ready when Ball comes through on the Achilles and he just takes him out. I love that look in Ball's eye when he gets shot and he makes eye contact with... I guess it's our Cameron Mitchell who's a bit older. It's like he kind of knows he's been bested. You see that that look in his eye. And it's just it's very yeah, satisfying he's totally as a viewer. Totally caught off guard. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's fun to see someone so nefarious completely kicked to the curb. So I, I really like it as as a, a villain death, a Stargate villain death. Yeah, and Mitchell's grandpa happens to also be the captain of the Achilles. So the film ends with the the photograph which Mitchell had referenced earlier in the in the movie. Uh, the photograph that's hanging up in his locker of his grandfather. Uh, now it's a photograph of him and his grandfather. It's, it's, it's not the Cameron that we see, who's a member of SG-1, in the present day, but it would have been the original timeline Mitchell, yeah. who would have been, I, I guess he would have grown old and died by this point. It's interesting because I feel like it might have to overlook the butterfly effect. Um, in terms of having an alternate version of yourself earlier in a timeline, but in terms of yeah, just, he's got to stay out of history's way, right? Yeah, really, really non-interventionalist policy in any kind of ma uh, matters of issue. But uh, it, you know, for what it's worth, it's it's just such a great ending, and it's kind of a wink and a nod to something the audience knows that the characters don't know, and and yet we still get our SG one back, and no one died at the end of the day, and our heroes succeeded um, through their own you know, tenacity, uh, just, you know, to close out the continuum section, I, I know this is one of your favorite Stargate stories. So if, is there any way for you to kind of summarize that? Like what, what makes this one of the absolute highlights of Stargate SG-1 for you? Again, like I said at the top, I think it's one of those stories that has everything and, and does everything right. SG-1 is, was a great show because 
of the characters and their relationships. And Continuum does that right. It was a great show because of the mythology. And here we get the Tok'ra. They've they've put down roots. They have this massive city. We get to see an extraction ceremony. Yeah. Um, and then all the stuff with the Gould and the System Lords. We get to see President Henry Hayes back in another timeline. Um, it's It's hitting on all cylinders on all that stuff. And then... It's a great sci-fi story. It's it's based in time travel. It's based in what if and alternate realities. And there's a firefight at the end. And it's just, uh, it, it's, it's one of the very best Stargate stories, in my opinion, because it does everything that a Stargate story is. And it's it does it all right. It's continuum is Stargate at the top of its game. And for me, you know, I think it's very important that stories that are ambitious, you know, feel organic. They can't feel like someone's pulling all these strings and it can't feel like fan service. And I think one of the accomplishments of Continuum is while it, you know, as you said, includes everything and more that we've come to love from Stargate, it still feels like an organic and real story. I don't feel like someone's behind their computer manipulating the action for, you know, to pander to me. And so it's really hard to do. It is very hard to write something that good and, and make it feel real and, and continuum succeeds yeah i think both of these movies really hold up if you go back to them now 10 years 15 years 20 years later uh, i think they really hold up and they're they're they really have demonstrated themselves to be an integral part of the stargate fabric well it's been fantastic in 2018 to celebrate stargate to celebrate stargate's return through origins being back at the convention circuit uh, and to celebrate the 10 year anniversary of Stargate Arc of Truth and Stargate Continuum, which were released on DVD in 2008. So as we turn now to the start of 2019, our next conversation, what we'd like to do is focus on looking ahead and what we hope Stargate might be in the future and particularly what Stargate might be in 2019. Adam, you and I are going to talk about that on the next podcast, but we'd also really like to hear from other fans. We'd like to get some voicemails going again here on the Gate World podcast. Yeah, I mean, when I got to listen to the podcast when uh, Atlantis or Universe was still on air, one of my absolute favorite parts was hearing a voicemail from another fan and hearing their perspective and also hearing that discussed by whoever's on the Gate World podcast. I would absolutely love to bring that back to kind of continue to include fandom, not just obviously in GateWorld or the forum, but also on the podcast. Um, we want to hear your thoughts, especially going forward. You know, what do you want to see happen with Stargate? We know it could go web series, miniseries, TV show, maybe have old SG-1 back, maybe a combo movie. It could be video games. It could be it could be literally anything. Stargate could be anything moving forward. So specifically in this next year, what do you want to see? And, and you know, call, uh, leave us a short voicemail and and share your thoughts, and we'll hopefully be able to play it on the show and respond to it. So we don't have a phone number for you to call right now, but what you can do is sit down at your computer and record us a, a little audio file, and then email it. If you would email it to webmaster at gateworld dot net, uh, or you can look it up on the Gateworld podcast show notes for this episode number one fifty one at gateworld dot net. You can find instructions for how to send us your recording. So yeah, tell us what you hope to see from Stargate in 2019. Um, try and keep it to a minute or less if you could so that we don't have to cut into uh, your voicemail if we get tons and tons of them. But that was always my favorite part of the old podcast is when it was more than just uh, the two or three of us uh, who, were, who were talking, but when we got to hear from listeners. So if you're out there, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, we really want you to weigh in on this next topic. Once again, the show notes for everything that we talked about today, you can find links over at gateworld.net. Just look for podcast number 151. And we'd love to hear what you thought of Stargate, the Ark of Truth and Continuum. Leave us a comment there. Again, send us a voicemail about what you hope Stargate's going to be in 2019. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll see you back here next time on the Gate World Podcast. <laughs>